Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Jess Thurkelson on the show. Jess is a documentary storyteller, filmmaker, photographer, and educator who has been telling the stories of others for over 15 years. His most recent project, a short film entitled One Step at a Time, follows three men as they overcome drug addiction and homelessness in California's Central Valley. The film was an official selection of The Big Tell, a national film contest and film festival featuring undiscovered stories from California's Central Valley, sponsored by the Central Valley Community Foundation and Bank of America. Thurkelson's CV is a fascinating collection of experiences and projects across the world that we don't have time to go through in detail here, but is worth looking at. It is truly amazing that we have such a talented filmmaker working in the Fresno area. This was a great conversation where we dig into narrative, filmmaking, travel, the country Bhutan, and so much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Jess Thurkelson. So, um, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Yeah, um, this question uh, makes me nervous. Just hearing the question makes me nervous. In fact, uh, this is a conversation my wife, my wife and I have pretty much weekly. Um, where where do you want to order out from? <laughs> exactly. And, it's, and, and you feel like you're omitting something when you pick one, right? Because when you pick one thing, you're essentially saying not something else. And so it's like it's almost like a commitment or a vow that you're making. Kind of. And then also, I think both... Uh, both she and I, we feel like we need to make the right choice when really there is no right choice, especially when then we choose something and then we have to choose what we're going to eat when we actually after we choose the restaurant. And then, you know, it's kind of like a layer upon layer. Um, but usually, you know, we try to order order. And, you know, since it's been since we really haven't eaten out at a restaurant, we've, we've taken out we've we've we usually take out places where that, that we don't feel comfortable uh, or confident in cooking ourselves. So we often go to a lot of um, ethnic restaurants, you know, so a lot of Asian, um, you know, so we'll do, you know, sushi or pokey, uh, or we'll do um, like Indian, because uh, we just, you know, we're not that very good at that. Um, you know, sometimes Vietnamese, Thai, those are the, those are the places we end up choosing um, most of the time. I'm embarrassed to say that I really haven't ventured far into kind of Lao food in Fresno. And I know it's a, it's a thing obviously with the community living here. Yeah. Um, so what are, what are, I mean, in Vietnamese food or like Southeast Asian foods like yeah. what you found that you've liked in Fresno? Well, you know, um, uh, we go with, uh, oftentimes we go with uh, 75 number two. <laughs> Do you know that place everybody? Um, let's no. see. I think it's McKinley and first or McKinley and Fresno, something like that. Um, that's where we usually get our pho. Um, and they kind of dive deep into a lot of different kinds of others. In fact, I think that the place ended up closing down um, over a year ago. And then because there was such an uproar on the Facebook machine, it, it came back. Um, you know, we go there every now and then. Um, yeah, uh, Laotian, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know enough about it myself, just that, you know, it's just delicious when, I, when, I, when we actually land on that and go for it. Yeah, it's uh, pho is an interesting thing. I, you know, I kind of spent the latter half of my childhood in the valley, and then moved to San Francisco, and moved to the part of San Francisco that people don't know about. That's called the Outer Sunset. Okay, uh, near yeah. Where Daly City is, and sure. I, I had a. Where all the roads are kind of like um, 
that's where they're 90 degrees, like the only place in San Francisco where they're actually 90 degrees. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I had a, you know, I was an 18 year old, you know, going to San Francisco state and mm -hmm. I moved in with a 40 year old accountant. Okay. Uh, really nice, uh, really nice guy. But he, him and I would go grocery shopping in Daly city. And after we'd go grocery shopping, we'd go to this pho place right next to the grocery store in Daly city. And honestly, it was, it was one of my favorite moments because you're just in there and they don't really care about you. Mm. And I love that feeling of like, they don't care whether you're eating or whatever. And they yeah. just, you just, you just point at the point at the menu and mm. they just bring it out and they just kind of say, all right, and that's it. And then they throw the check at you at some point. Right. You really like don't want to, you really don't want to be that spectacle, you know, in that, in, in, in the, those authentic places. But yes. yeah, it is nice when they forget about you. Um, Absolutely. I definitely agree. Well, so um, there's lots of things I want to talk about. Um, I thought it'd be fun to start off by talking about rodeos. Um, yeah. <laughs> I spent, uh, spent a good part of my childhood in Bakersfield, California, okay. which has its fair share of rodeos. And I was only wrangled, pun intended, into going uh, once or twice. Um, and it's such a weird, I mean, I want to say it's weird uh, culturally because it makes sense culturally with the history of the United States and the acquisition of vaqueros and like their legacy. And then, you know, this culture around cowboys, but it also feels like it's on its way out a little bit. Hmm. I know we have like the Clovis rodeo or whatever. Um, but I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if kids these days are growing up thinking about going to the rodeo. Hmm. Um, so you did some work with rodeos and I'm curious if you think <laughs> they're uh, on their way out or, if this is a kind of one of those enduring cultural niches that will just exist kind of in these, you know, towns that are somewhat rural, at least in parts. Yeah. Um, I, the, the, the work that I've done with the radios, we should clarify what that means. Yeah. You um, weren't running around with like yeah, a clown yeah, yeah, mask yeah. on. I or, wish, I wish I was the radio clown. Um, no, I, so I, I grew up in, um, I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in suburban New Jersey. I uh, lived most of my life on the East Coast and um, found my, my, myself in Fresno uh, about eight years ago um, when I was offered a job to teach here and, um, you know, made the, made the cross-country move and kind of, it, it felt like I landed in a foreign country to a degree. I was, I was out of... Um, my element but to be honest i i i think i thrive in those situations i really enjoy travel i enjoy putting myself in you know uncomfortable positions and um this was this was a this was a community that i had um that, that was different than i think that a lot of the other kinds of communities that i grew up in and i had lived as an adult um and i was fascinated with um the idea of um riding bulls bull riding and, uh, you know, so, so, and, and, and being, being a storyteller, being, you know, a, a documentary storyteller, I was interested in um, learning more about what drew people into it. Because for me, it, it seemed like it was a broken arm waiting to happen, at least, you know, um, maybe more than that, right? So I'm curious, and, and you know, I kind of got, well, maybe it's the, you know, it's the adrenaline kick. So I, um, you know, I, I, got interested and um, got connected with a few other um, friends and colleagues who had access to um, 
Jerry Brown's Bucking Bulls, which is this community of people who um, who rode bulls. It was bull riding. It was it was you know supportive. Um, you could you know learn from each other. Um, Let's just be clear about which Jerry Brown we're talking yeah. about, though, because yeah, sure it was the governor. It was the, it was the past you're talking governor. about the governor. <laughs> uh, I am talking about the past governor, actually. <laughs> no, it was about an individual who um, who had land and just kind of opened it up for uh, for these um, you know for these events. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of young people came, a lot of old people came and it was just kind of like a community that just knew each other and, um, enjoyed hanging out and, uh, people would ride bulls in the background, you know? So it was, it was about the community, I think more than the riding of the bulls, but it was just something that, that was happening during that time. And I found that, um, I found that really interesting. So, uh, yeah, so I did a, I did a short film on, on that community, but focusing on, um, the uh, owner and his daughter as the the kind of like the the transition of um, I guess ownership the transition of uh, you know who's who's running this place kind of thing you know who's going to keep this community going you know in the future um, and there's a lot of cool dynamics of you know um, father daughter relationships but also about community um, that uh, that I found interesting. Um, and also, I think that the second year that I was here in Fresno was when the Clovis Radio was celebrating its 100-year anniversary, which blew my mind. I didn't realize that it had been going on for so long. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a huge event. So we're now on, you know, 107, 100 and something like that, you know, of, of them, of, of this, of the, of the radio happening. And I, you know, I, I think it's a, I think it's a, I think even as, and you, you know, even as like urbanization is, is, is happening. Um, <clears throat> I see these, uh, you know, I, I, I see people being um, drawn into these kinds of events, you know, not even, you know, through um, ties with their family, through tradition, but, um, but also is almost like, you know, an answer to forced urbanization, you know, it's like kind of like just enjoying it, just enjoying the, the atmosphere, just enjoying like being around people. Um, I myself, and you know, like, I, I think it's like, um, I think it's the tailgating that, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's the, all of the events that surrounds the actual, um, bull riding that is part of the process. So, um, I think that's what I think draws a lot of people in and maybe a small part, maybe draw in, but you know, I'm just, I'm just speculating here. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of like baseball. It's like. If you've ever gone to a Dodgers game, like you never remember the score. You're just kind of shooting the shit with people. And that's really what it is at its core. And, you know, I, I, I think that pastimes like that, you know, especially when we're overly stimulated and overly entertained, um, those, those are kind of um, things that are going away. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like uh, in my classroom when I talk about uh, kids being bored. And how that's uh, how that's a, a vice, you know, in their minds, you know, being bored is not something that should ever happen. Mm. And, um, you know, sitting, sitting there, hanging out with people, you know, tailgating. I think it has a, there's a cultural disdain towards that kind of culture, mm. but without mm -hmm. looking at really what's happening in that moment or what, what the people are doing there. And because they're using their association game 
to kind of say, make a cultural critique of, you know, conservative people or people that love sports or mm. people that like to watch bulls jump around, you know, but without thinking about, you know, it's kind of like the line from Goodwill Hunting when he says, when she, the, whatever her name is, asks Will if he wants to get some coffee. He's like, well, we could just sit around and eat some caramels instead. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of that moment. Like, you know, it's like whatever we're doing to be together, um, you know, that, that's really what it's about, I think. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's the case. You know, you just find yourself um, surrounded by people that you enjoy. And, you know, and that's, and that's what it's about. <laughs> Yeah. So let's, um, let's get into kind of maybe a point where we're going to uh, not argue with each other, but maybe a point of, of uh, I want to push you on some things, okay. which is um, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a history person, but I'm also a person that's skeptical of narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm skeptical of narrative for a few different reasons. Um, and the, the most probably prominent of those reasons is how the narrative is, is used, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're telling a story, um, you're picking and choosing how to order the events, right, in order to follow a certain structure. Okay. And we know that in the real kind of natural world, things are often chaotic. There might be patterns, but we all pick and choose what those patterns are. Um, and sometimes people will change things or alter things to fit within a narrative because they have this, you know, it's confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. They have this belief about the world. and so. I simultaneously see the value of narrative, but also see the risk in mm. narrative in looking for simple stories in a complex world. Um, so what do you see as the advantages and disadvantages of presenting complex information to people through a narrative structure? Mm. That's a good question. Um, can I, can I, can I uh, ask you a question back first? Sure, yeah, please. <laughs> um, how so and and you're you're a historian i'm not a historian so maybe tell me a little bit about how history is passed between people between generations um between societies how is history um i guess documented well yeah and that's i mean it's true like history is told through narratives and that's how it gets passed absolutely and I I think what I more of what I'm getting at is not that it's, you know, not that there's like this superior way to do it, but rather seeing the limitations and what you can accomplish with it, Mm. you know, and that instead of, instead of telling, uh, not telling stories, maybe we tell more stories to deal with the limitations. But I think people maybe like simple stories. And I'm thinking about a lot of documentaries, right? Because documentaries, fall victim to this a lot of times where you want to tell a story, a specific story. um, But while there's 10 other stories and I think people like the narrative flow. And so it's tempting to want to tell a story in a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, and I, I think, you know, I think we, we, our brains, you know, we as humans are kind of hardwired for for narrative you know i think that we remember things in narrative patterns and narrative forms and narrative arcs um we we kind of want to form our lives into some sort of narrative um whether uh we do so um advantageously or disadvantage or disadvantageously you know um i think we do both but um as a 
as a species, I think the fact that we do um, are able to kind of create stories, to create narratives, um, that is what really kind of sets us apart from a lot of other, you know, animals. It's what gives us an advantage, I think. Um, you know, so I guess when you ask, you know, what are the advantages and disadvantages of, of, um, of sharing information through narrative, um, you know, it's, I'd say that we, we, I would find it hard to find examples of how we don't share or remember information through narrative structures. Um, you know, I think the majority of what information is passed, um, you know, between person and person, but then also between society, society and time era and, and you know, periods of time are, are these narrative structures or narratives that, um, you know, we kind of uh, make meaning from. Yeah. So it's a little bit like, I don't know if you read that famous book that came out a few years ago, Sapiens. Yeah. Um, no, no, Yuval Harari. He made the kind of the similar argument that like what set humans apart is we create fictions, I think is the word he used, which is I, I, a carefully selective, somewhat pejorative word in some ways, uh, mm -hmm. maybe meant uh, to jab religious people a little bit. But uh, yeah. I think the point, what he was trying to get at is that we create these things for a specific reason, which is to organize people. And so I guess the question though that I'm asking is I understand that we are doing this for a specific reason. I understand it's the most effective way. What I'm concerned about sometimes is when the narratives lead people astray yeah. and lead people to discount facts that don't fit within the narrative. Mm. You know, I mean, I think about, you know, some, the most common example of this is um, when people are wrongly accused of crimes, right? Mm -hmm. um, like the prosecution in the case gets a narrative and it's, mm -hmm. it, the narrative makes sense and it flows. Um, but then there's this one little piece of information, right? That the person happened to have an alibi or something, right? And it doesn't yeah. fit. And so yeah. there's a temptation to want to smooth out that narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, you know, I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm actually in, in agreement with you. And it kind of goes back to what I'm saying, where we, um, we, we, we do think in narrative structures and we force things into them. You know, I think this also kind of goes along with our relationships with people. Sometimes we force a narrative onto a person. You know, we, we, we think about, um, you know, this person is this or this person is that, um, you know, and then we have this story that we, uh, that, that we've coded that person with, um, you know, and our relationship with them is different, you know, because of that. Um, I, I think that there's, I think stories can be incredibly um, uh, powerful in um, both positive and negative ways. You know, I think that there's incredible amounts of uh, false narratives that are uh, spread um, easily because they are so uh, engaging. And um, we want to hold on to something like that because that's our nature. You know, it's, it's, it's like, uh, you know, just getting a fix almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it may, it, 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 it helps to alleviate this kind of like deep seated anxiety that we don't have control of the world, I think too. Um, Cause if we can understand it and this is why conspiracy theories are so seductive, which, you know, that's, I mean, kind of, this is apropos for the moment because so there's so many conspiracy theories out there these days. Maybe, maybe it might not be any more. They just feel more prominent because, you know, there's <laughs> very public people talking about them. Sure. Um, but I think that 
that's the danger. And I, and, and so I guess maybe I'm not saying that narratives are necessarily bad as a way to present information, but, you know, understanding their limitations is, is to, to not hold on to them so tightly that you're willing to ignore information, I think is what I'm, I'm getting at. But um, yeah. And you know, you've, you've spoken with a number of journalists that have come onto this podcast and, you know, and I know that, you know, this is one of the difficulties that journalism is facing now in that we all kind of have these, these belief systems that we, that we hold on to and we can validate those belief systems by the news that we seek out. So we've already formed a narrative in our heads and then we just, um, you know, we, we, we can build upon that narrative by, by, by picking and choosing the news uh, that we, that we want to read and that we want to hear and that we want to, you know, engage with. Yeah. It's like going to the grocery store. You get to pick out what brand of toothpaste you want. You know, now you can pick what brand of reality that you want. Um, which, Almost. Which, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, obviously too, I mean, when we're talking about narratives, um, making films is a different kind of narrative. Um, because in many ways it's a, you know, it's a visual narrative, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what sets good film apart is the visuals, right? It's not, I mean, the ideas, those can be replicated in books, the audio, those can be replicated in music or whatever, but it's those visuals um, that, that set the, the medium apart. And so how do you think about crafting stories with visuals? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I actually, I mean, I, I think about the visuals in terms of serving a story. And I think that it's the story that is going to lead the visuals. And I think it's the visuals sometimes that we, that we might think about later on, but um, there's a lot of important elements that go beyond, I think, the visuals that really do emotionally um, engage a viewer of, you know, a film. So um, I, I would, I, I, you know, I agree that the visuals are, are a really, um, you know, striking and powerful um, form of immediacy, right? I think that they, they form, you can be engaged immediately with a visual. You can connect across cultures, across time periods with a visual. And, um, and that's very powerful. But I think if you're going to, um, if you want to move someone, if you want to change the behavior, if you want to change their ideas, if you want to have them think longer and harder about a particular theme or an issue uh, in your story, it's not the visuals that it's going to do it. It's, the, it's the, the story itself. It's the way that they can place themselves within that narrative, within that story, and then see a little bit about you know, how that um, affects their own, their own lives. So do you... So what's in terms of how you approach a subject? So let's maybe go back to um, the rodeo, which is where everything goes back to. Um, <laughs> so when you approach a, a story like that, um, how do you think about, or how do you know when you've got something? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's like, uh, I mean, first off, if I'm interested, First off, I'm interested. I think, I mean, one of the, one of the, one of the core values that I have as a person is curiosity. And I knew that I, I that I, 
wanted that I need to be able to do something that is going to um, that's going to be able to uh, satisfy some sort of bit of curiosity. And the, and the thing with documentary filmmaking, uh, documentary storytelling, is that it allows you to kind of dig deep into um, a topic, an issue, a community, a person, and you know, deeper uh, than you would have had, you know, reason to otherwise. Right? It's an excuse. It's an excuse, and and it's and it's a it's a nice one, you know. So, um, I I think when I feel that I want to know more about something, like I don't I I don't understand this, I want to know more about it. That you know kind of sets off a little trigger. Um, if it touches upon something that is within the human condition, you know what I mean? Like like so, for instance, I I don't ride bulls. Why would I ever be Why would I ever be interested in watching? you know, a short film about bull riders, right? Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of other, you know, films that I've made that I, that I have very, I made a, 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 you know, a short film about an almond farmer. I had, you know, a, a short film about a um, world-class boomerang thrower, um, you know, a film about um, uh, three um, homeless men who, who dealt with addiction. You know, there's a lot of different kinds of like stories that I'll tell, but like there's something about those characters that kind of touch upon the human, you know, like the human condition that I can relate to, you know, in the, in the film about the radio, it was, you know, it was about family and about um, the idea of uh, like things won't last forever. Change is inevitable. Change is inevitable. How do you deal with it? That's one of the, I think the issues that was brought up, but also like the idea that like um, community and um and loneliness you know there's a there is a lot of bull riders who um teenagers who kind of found a sense of community in this in this particular um in this particular space um and i think we all you know relate with you know loneliness at one point in our lives um we all relate with you know certain things and we can we can you know, I've, I've found communities in different places, you know, these individuals found community here. That's interesting. I find that fascinating. So, you know, there's, I guess there's a lot of little, um, little tingly sensations that I'll get when I'm, you know, uh, talking through a particular potential for a story. Yeah. You know, documentary filmmaking is such an interesting kind of feet in two different worlds in some ways. Um, you know, I, I went to San Francisco State for my undergraduate, and they had a, a film program there that was partly uh, funded by uh, Mr. Lucas, who lived up the road. And um, you know, when I think about documentary filmmaking, it's kind of this—you know—you have this, you know, you obviously have the film element, but you also have this journalistic element to it too, right? And so you're kind of flexing a few different skills. Um, so what do you? I mean if you're talking to young documentarians, um, do you think they having a background in journalism is something that they should think about? Um, or do you think a good filmmaker can just treat like a, a subject that's in their environment in the same way that they might film something? Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of people who go into journalism because they are curious, because they want to engage with other people. They want to learn more about their society, their community. They want to help out. And those are all really noble causes. And I think that there's, a, there's an overlap there with, with documentary storytelling and filmmaking as well. 
Um, but I don't think that you need to have a journalistic background. Um, I, I, I studied geology as an undergraduate. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've, um, I've been moved kind of backed my way into documentary filmmaking um, later in life. And, um, you know, I think there was a lot of stuff that I had learned as a geologist that actually worked well. And, you know, was able to, I was able to bring into the, into the field. Um, but, you know, I think that you need to be able to kind of balance a number of different hats if you want to be a, a documentary filmmaker. You need to be able to, um, you need to be able to, to um, uh, be interested in people, uh, to know how to engage and to, to have conversation and to ask questions and to get to, um, and get people to trust you, to share their stories. And that takes a lot of, um, you know, I think that that's hard to teach. How do you, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you teach someone to, to get others to trust you, to open up and to share their stories? Um, but you also have to have a really strong analytical uh, mind and to be able to be organized and um, to break large projects into smaller tasks to, um, you know, to have a, you know, a producer's, a creative producer mind as well, where you need to be able to um, solve problems when they arise and, um, and do so, uh, you know, in ways that, you know, are ethically sound and, and, uh, you know, and that's, and that takes, I think that takes a lot of different kinds of skill sets. So, you know, I have, uh, you know, I have colleagues and friends that come into documentary filmmaking from so many different kinds of uh, backgrounds. And, um, you know, I encourage my students uh, that they should, um, they should take classes in anything and everything. You know, I tell them, go take science classes, go take business classes, go take sociology, anthropology, English, go take art classes. You know, documentary filmmaking is an art, right? So you're crafting a certain kind of story, you're repurposing, you're re-editing, you are restructuring reality, right? And that's an art. You know, as you said before, life has all of these strings, life has all of these little threads, it's messy, life is messy. Um, you know, I think most arts take the messiness of life and then focus it on something so um, specific that it kind of overwhelms us in a way, right? And a lot of times I feel that, you know, I do feel like an overwhelmedness in just, just life itself, right? And, you know, art is being able to structure and push that into something that is um, accessible, you know, to, a, to, a, to someone that's, you know, maybe going through the same struggle. I mean, when I'm thinking about a journalist I want to read, and let's say I'm reading uh, a journalist write about CRISPR, for example, I'm going to feel a lot better knowing that that journalist has a degree in biology mm. versus someone that, you know, maybe got a degree in journalism and there's nothing wrong with getting a degree in journalism, um, but there is a background knowledge that's needed to understand those things. And I think that's something that's underrated in this world. And I'm saying this right before we go into the overrated versus underrated section. It's <laughs> underrated to have uh, background knowledge about something before you hold forth on that thing. Um, and I think that would be, you know, that's the world I want to live in where people with expertise become the journalists in those fields. And it's, and oftentimes if you're reading a good newspaper, those who those people are, uh, those are those people, but uh, not always. So 
Speaking of that, um, one of my favorite sections is overrated versus underrated, where I ask you a series, oh, give boy. you a series of topics. You tell me if it's overrated, underrated, and why. You can also pass or say it's properly rated. Oh, if boy. You feel okay. like the rating that exists is uh, appropriate. So uh, we'll start with an easy one. Uh, the documentaries of Ken Burns, overrated or underrated? Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, have, I have a feeling I'm going to be bad at this. Um, early in my career, overrated. Now in my career, rated. Rated. Why, why, do, you, why do you think they were overrated when you were younger? Um, because, I, because there were so many um, people who uh, kind of took a particular style of his and just tried to make the, the same film in different ways on topics that really didn't need to be made. But I, I, I have appreciated the fact that his films took an incredible amount of research, um, an incredible amount of behind the scenes to make them look so easy. You know, you watch a Ken Burns film, you're like, I can take some photographs, I can move the camera around, and I can interview people and maybe bring in some narration, I can do this. But the thing is, is that when it looks so simple, you know, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of effort to make it look so simple. So, um, also, I mean, he's he's an historian, right? He's he's been awarded a number of you know different kinds of accolades from a number of different historical societies, um, and he's doing good work documenting certain you know pockets of American life. Uh, so, I don't sit. I don't. I don't. I, I, I can't remember the last time that I've ever sat and be like, I could really use a good Ken Burns nine part series tonight that I'm just going to binge watch. You know, that doesn't happen, hasn't happened. I don't foresee it happening. Um, but I appreciate and understand the artistry, the work and the effort and the importance of everything that he is doing and does do. Yeah, I have to watch him in small bursts. So if you do too much, you just you feel like you should be uh, cashing social security checks while you're watching, yeah. you know, and it's, yeah. it's, it's like, it, it takes me a good month or two to get through a good nine parter. I mean, but you know, I got through Vietnam and I got through country music and I'm glad I did both of those. Okay. Um, yeah. So r tangentially related to that, do you think the Ken Burns effect is overrated or underrated? <laughs> um, so yeah, before Ken Burns did it, there were, I mean, people had done it before right. you know moved around on a on a on a on a you know a photograph but he he was able to to kind of like squeeze every last juice from that picture right um and i think you know you need that if you're gonna you know put together nine hours worth of content uh for you know a particular um pbs special you know you, you come back to that photograph and then show us something more um but it was you know it was just a slow reveal um, there's now, you know, there's now iMovie has something called the Ken Burns effect, right? So everyone kind of does it for all of their summer vacation photos. Um, yep. yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's because, you know, it, and, you know, I think this is the case with a lot of ideas that were great at first, you know, the more and more that you see it, the more and more you grow tired of that. And, and you can't really blame the originator and not that Ken was the originator, but, you know, you can't really blame the good idea that everyone wanted to do it. Yeah. I mean, we were talking, I was talking with uh, Brian Harley about um, that, uh, whatever that, what's uh, that uh, Jaws effect, what's it called again with the zoom? Um, shoot. I Parallax. 
it's where like it's it the i think the i don't oh, is remember it the, is it the hitchcock it's the hitchcock um you know you're you're zooming in as you're um pulling back the camera yeah 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 exactly mm-hmm. you know and it's it's one of those things that like <laughs> the the use of it or the creation of it and its power should not be negated by the fact that it's been overused by other people yeah exactly so next one's a really easy one um, okay Overrated or underrated, uh, Yosemite among all national parks. Um, you know, okay, I'm going to say rated. Um, okay. the, the valley can get very busy, yeah. um, which is unfortunate, especially when, you know, there's tour buses that come in and, 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 and you, you find yourself kind of elbow to elbow. Um, and when I'm with family who, you know, isn't comfortable beyond the Valley, you know, that's what we do. Um, and I think that it's, I mean, it's breathtaking. It's breathtaking to be there. Um, but you know, it's not a secret. (laughs) It's not a secret that it's one of the most beautiful places, you know, I've ever seen, you know, in the world. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of ongoing business ventures that bring eyeballs to, uh, you know, the, the valley there so they can get their picture. I think it's overrated when people go snapshot, get back uh, in, their, in their vehicle and leave. That's overrated. Um, yeah. You know, at least smell it. <laughs> at yeah, least get out absolutely. and smell it. You just need to stand uh, in, in particular having, you know, lived here and lived in the valley for a while, just the, 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 literally the best place is just to stand in front of El Capitan in that little meadow there and just look up for a while, either at the end of the day or, you know, really any time of day. Um, and that, that, that place in the park is, is probably next to obviously Glacier Point or Taft Point. You know, there's, there's just so many good little places and one of my favorite trails is starts at Glacier Point and goes kind of the backside mm-hmm. um, down there where you get that, uh, I forget the name of the kind of hidden waterfall back there. But there's mm-hmm. so many things to do in there that are not just hanging out in the valley, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think people need to explore other things as well. All right. So on that note, um, I'm not sure whether this one will land or not, but I actually knew about your geology background and wanted to ask you a question <laughs> about it. Uh, so one of my favorite books, well, I, now, I'm, now it's super loaded. I shouldn't have said that. Uh, do you think uh, John, Mc, John McPhee's book, uh, Annals of the Former World, is overrated or underrated with your geology background? Um, I have two copies on my shelf, and I have yet to read one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that true with all I, John McPhee I, books? We I, like I know, to buy them, but not read them. Yeah. So I was given one as a present and I think the other I had had for a while because, I, you know, it's one of those things where it was like, I, I need to read this. I want to read this. Um, I think John McPhee's a great writer. It's just that, um, gosh, it, it hasn't come up on the reading roulette, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a tough, it's the same. I mean, him and Ken Burns are kind of similar humans in that, like, they're so important, but like, you really have to have a sabbatical or a long summer to really feel like you have the time to just sit there with them. Cause you gotta mm-hmm. sit, they're like an old man on a bench. Like you, yeah. like you can't just rush through your conversation with an old man on a bench. Yeah. Um, all right, next one. Humans of New York, overrated or underrated? Um, 
I think Humans of New York was a, what is, um, I think it was a great idea. I think it was a great idea um, that Brandon, I can't remember Brandon's last name, uh, came up with uh, 10 years ago now, maybe more than that, 12 years ago. Um, and he's made a career of it. He's made a career of it. Um, and I actually use a, um, I teach a photojournalism class at Fresno State and I, um, I give them an assignment that lasts the entire semester called the 100 Strangers Project, where they need to go out and take 100 portraits of 100 strangers, um, very similar to uh, Humans of New York. Um, and uh, it is one of the most um, challenging and uh, difficult assignments that I give my students. And um, by the end of the, well, you know, by the second week, they hate me. Third week, they hate me. Fourth week, they hate me. Fifth week, they hate me. But by the end of the semester, they say, you know, this has been one of the most formative experiences of my, you know, college, college career. I'm, you know, I consider myself an introvert, but this forced me to talk to people. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to teach was that, you know, the idea that a camera can open up different kinds of doors and um, allow you to connect deeper with people around you and to learn about their stories. Um, and so in that regard, it's, um, it's underrated the power of, um, of connection, you know, and using a camera as just an excuse to do so. Um, uh, at this point, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's an empire. <laughs> He's come yeah. out with a lot of different kinds of books. Um, I think that the, um, you know, unfortunately, like the, the spirit of it was just that it was a guy in his camera and he was interested in people. Right. Um, and he was interested in them. And I think that it's still there, but you know, there's, it's, it's, it's a larger, there's, there's larger cogs in that machinery. I think at this point, um, and there's been a lot of different kinds of like spinoffs, you know, so there's been, you know, like humans of name that city, you know, yeah. humans of, you know, and, um, I think it's great that people want to connect, but I think it's not great if people, uh, if photographers use it as like a, um, a trophy shelf where it's like, this is the stranger I got here. This is the stranger I got here. This is the stranger I got here. You know, if, if those connections mean something and they better your photography and they better your connections, you know, connecting with, you know, other humans, that's wonderful. But if it's something where you see it as like just another kind of trophy, then I think that's under, I think that's overrated. Yeah. All right. Two more before we go back to the regular questions. Um, another lob, um, uh, the films of Michael Moore. <laughs> uh, all right. So again, I'm bad at this cause I, I, I'm always given these like, um, so well, Michael, no, Moore, that, that's part of, let's, that's part let's of this. Real. I can't, I, I can't, I can't just, I can't just yell out over or under. <laughs> well, yeah, this is not a game show with a buzzer, but um, saying, saying it depends or saying it's more complicated is good too, because I think that's part of the shtick as well, which is that yeah. like it's, things are never that simple. Right. Um, do I like it when people just say flippant statements about famous people? Of course, we all do. Um, but at the end of the day, I, 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 I use it as a tool to uh, kind of probe about things that I'm curious about yeah. and yeah. how documentarians feel about Michael Moore's kind of, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe what he does exactly is yeah. interesting to me. So here's the, here, I mean, with Michael Moore, um, Michael Moore's films have grossed in have grossed millions of dollars for documentarians for, 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 for him, for, for documentaries. Um, before that, there really wasn't, you know, a blockbuster documentary that was kind of like a, you know, 
it, it, they just didn't happen. Um, so what that meant was that uh, there was all of these um, potential production companies that thought, huh, we, you know, documentaries actually can make money. Let's fund some documentaries and see what happens. So um, just like Ken Burns, Michael Moore makes his films look easy, right? He has a persona. There's the character of Michael Moore. Michael Moore has a character, right? Mm -hmm. Michael Moore, the person, is an incredibly astute, uh, incredibly crafty, intelligent um, advocate who is who 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 thinks about what he wants his films to to act, how his film should act upon his audience. He thinks about that first. Uh, the character of Michael Moore is kind of like this, you know, this. This bumbling, likable guy who wears his, you know, his his hat off his head, and um, you know, is kind of disheveled, doesn't really kind of get anything, and he's he's likable in his films. Um, you know, and there's a difference between Michael Moore the person and Michael Moore the character. Um, so, uh, you know, he he opened the door for um a lot of documentarians to um to start thinking about like larger budget productions in their films, uh, which was a good thing. Um, Michael Moore's films, as I mentioned, you know, they're films for advocacy, you know, and I think there's a lot of documentaries that do that. You know, I think that they have, they want to change someone's behavior. They want to change someone's ideas. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, they're, they're fairly biased. <laughs> uh, and he wants you to, um, you know, he, he, he has a goal in mind, right? That's not to say that's necessarily a bad thing, but, you know, if you agree with his ideas, you love it. If you don't agree with his ideas all that much, you hate it. So he's a very divisive character in terms of, you know, American culture, and he's not apologetic about it, you know, and I think that's, he has the right to be, you know, he has the right to be. So he found an incredible medium. He found uh, an incredible means of communicating with a lot of people um that i think um no one had really uh harnessed before so uh in that regard uh but he's you know i think he's well known so he's rated you know what i mean i think he's rated yeah. you know that that makes sense um you know yeah i think that makes sense yeah and i you know people that are at least direct about their biases you know i mean i think transparency you know, being clear on the cover about what you're about is 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 just as good as wanting to appear to be neutral. Um, sure. They just have different goals. All right, last one um, of this section: uh, the film Grizzly Man. Mm. Werner Herzog is uh, such a fascinating character. Uh, um. There are Werner Herzog films that I absolutely adore, that I absolutely adore, uh, that I will watch um, over and over, and I find them hilarious, and I is find like them insightful. Happy, is Happy People one of them? Happy People is, yeah, it's a, that's, a, yeah. that's a great film. Um, yeah. You know, there's, a, I think Grizzly Man was a particular kind of sensational uh, piece of work that um, Werner Herzog did in a point in his career where he was um, kind of stepping out of this role as like this, you know, um, this independent filmmaker into more of like a, like a, um, a household name almost. Like Werner Herzog almost seems like to be a, a household name. Um, 
and a cultural icon. Let's just say that a cultural icon. Um, you know, I, I appreciate who he is. Um, I thought the story um, was fascinating. He, you know, he chooses interesting, fascinating characters. Um, he tells them in a way that's really fascinating and interesting. Um, but you know, I, I I would say it's rated because that was that that film got that 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 film did well. I'm pretty sure, and it got festival success. You know, it got awards. It it propelled. If Werner Herzog wasn't already a household name, I think after that he was. Did it win an Oscar? I don't even. I can't even remember. I I think it did, or at least some some kind of prize. I yeah. um. Yeah, his his way of filmmaking um is so interesting and. You know, it's those scenes that he keeps rolling after they stop talking that, that, yeah. that stay with you, um, especially in morgues. It's always in the morgue where you get those interesting haunting moments. Um, yeah, I know. I think one of my favorite Werner Herzog um, documentaries was one that he made um, early in his career. It was called The Land of Silence and Darkness, uh, early 70s. He follows um, the uh, deaf-blind community in Europe, and there's this one unforgettable scene, unforgettable scene of this woman flying in a plane. I'll just say that if you ever if you ever watch the film. Yeah, I think it's been a long time, um, but yeah, like I, Happy People was one that stuck with me, mm-hmm. and just like seeing those people walking around the woods of Siberia co- completely covered with <laughs> bugs. <Yeah. laughs> and I think, I think, um, yeah, it's like Ken Burns and like John McPhee, you know, sometimes you just don't want to get into it. Mm-hmm. I, and I, and I, you know, some, some things that are really meaningful are not easy to consume. Yeah. Um, you know, like, one thing that I've become into lately and this people got into weird stuff in the pandemic. I got into opera in the pandemic and it's uh, you know, the metropolitan opera in New York has a great on demand service. So I've been watching operas and I got to be honest, it's, it's quite easy. And particularly I've been watching Philip Glass's operas, which Mm. you know, anything about Philip Glass, he's very minimalist and there's not really a narrative to his music. It's just, I, I call it spinning in a circle. Mm-hmm. Um, and his operas are the same way where there's not really a narrative. You're just watching this kind of like fever dream orgy on a stage. Oh, and it's, um, it's very tempting to look at my phone or do something <laughs> else, you know, cause you're like, Oh, well this, you know, recently I watched the one that's about the Egyptian Pharaoh Akhenaten. And at one point, there's a 20-minute sequence where Akhenaten slowly walks across the stage, mm. and it, it transpires over 20 minutes uh, wow. from side to side. And at that, in those 20 minutes, I probably looked at my phone five, six, seven times, just because mm. I'm like, oh, he's still there, he's still walking, and it's the same kind of harmonic pattern that was there five minutes ago. But there was all this other stuff happening I didn't notice because, mm. you know, and I think there's a lot of consuming today that's mindless or passive mm-hmm. um, where we're being overstimulated because it, people know that we need constant firing. And a lot of these things that we've been talking about require some patience. Yeah. And I think encouraging people to be 
into the hard listening, the hard reading or the hard viewing, I think is something we need to do more of. And I don't know if we do that in education as much these days. I think we try to entertain students a lot um, as, and I, and that worries me um, in many ways, but on the flip side, let's talk about happiness. Um, Mm. So I've always wanted to go to Bhutan to know what it's like Mm -hmm. to be the happiest place in the world. I thought it was Disneyland growing up. My parents told me it was (laughs) Disneyland, but it's Bhutan apparently. Uh, So did you feel happier when you traveled to Bhutan? Um, and I'm asking this because I want to talk about travel a little bit. Um, I read this great book a long time ago. I think it's called Vagabonding. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of like a philosophy of travel. Mm. Um, and I know that, you know, when you're traveling for work, it's way different. Traveling is not as fun as it will be. And for you as a journalist and a documentarian, your brain is your work in many mm-hmm. ways. And so you're always traveling with it. Um, mm-hmm. And so how how does traveling maybe how do you think about traveling now as someone that uh, has traveled for work or thinks about the world in a kind of documentarian way yeah um so i'll i'll start with bhutan and kind of move on so i i i yeah i had bhutan was so high on my list of places but yet you know it's one of those things where it's like i'll never get to bhutan (laughs) it's not easy you know it's not it's not you you know you you I have a layover in Bhutan that just doesn't happen. Where um, is Bhutan again exactly yeah, in relationship? Uh, it's it's north of India, kind of stuck in the Himalayas. Okay. Um, you know, it's so I, it's not it's not it's is it it's like connected to Tibet basically, right? Yeah, um, it's you know, so it's like uh, it's, it's just uh, south of China, um, north of Bangladesh, and it is um, east of uh, the region Sikkim in India. So it's uh, like um, N- Nepal is the country that is um, on the other side of Sikkim. There's a small little sliver of land that kind of comes up that is that is Sikkim. Um, so it's it is in the, the, the Himalayas. Um, you know, when you when you fly there, the, the you know, they they have eight airplanes um, in their Royal Air Air line. They have eight airplanes, and okay. I think there's only two flights that come in and out of the, the country a day. Oh my gosh! Right, maybe maybe a little bit more, and you know, and one of them comes from uh, one Delhi of them comes from, one comes from Delhi, and the other I can't even remember where the other one goes. So I, I came in through Delhi. Um, there's only certain. I mean, they have to ha- the pilots that go in the, the airport is in this town called Paro, and um, the, it's in this valley because the, the 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 country is so mountainous that the um the only way that you can land the plane is by eyesight because the electrical the you know electrical communication doesn't this is what i was told the electrical communication doesn't actually um it, it isn't reliable okay so um you know if there's if there's you know too much weather uh you know flights don't don't happen so you know, there's logistical issues of actually getting in in there, and the plans are very small. You know, the plans because it is so small. You know, you're you're sitting next to someone else, and then across the aisle is only one person. So there's three people in each row, and then there's only like 18 rows, right? So do the math. To you know, that's how many people go in and out of the country. So it's wow. very difficult to get in, right? Um, and when you do go in, you have to basically like register with the government and say, "This is what I'm going to be doing. This is where I'm going to go, and this is who's going to take me there." 
who is Bhutanese, you know? Um, so they know exactly um, where and, and who is coming into the country. They're, they're, um, they, were, they, they, they took pretty much the opposite approach to Nepal. Um, and I, I, I did a project in Nepal and I spent about four months in Nepal and I had a really um, interesting time there. But Nepal basically was like, you know, we're going to open up our doors and any um, Westerner who wants to come can. And Nepal is incredibly, um, the cost of living there is so low. They had all of these, you know, they had a lot of people who just kind of like, you know, we're, we're living off of dollars a day, living in, you know, Kathmandu and just kind of living there, you know, and um, it changed the culture. It changed, I think, the feel of Kathmandu in the last 60 years. Uh, and Bhutan uh, decided to do something completely different. And they said, the only people who are going to come into Bhutan are going to pay for it. <laughs> uh, there's like a $200, a, 200 a, a day tax to be in Bhutan. Every day that you're in Bhutan, you pay 200 or $250 a day, wow. something like that. Right. So if you want to be there for, you know, 10 day, a 10 day trip, you know, um, that's, but that tax includes like, um, your accommodations, uh, and it includes, I think it might include some portion of your transportation as well. So, so what you're saying is, is Bhutan and Disneyland have lots of similarities. Yeah, you're right. It is. It's the, that is why it's the happiest place on earth because you know, you're just, they charge admission. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was, yeah. So I was teaching a photography workshop there. Um, and I went in 2017 and I went again in 2018. So I actually have been able to, I, I went there twice. Um, and it is, uh, it's a, it's a, it's an incredibly, um, it, I, you know, I've done, I've, I've been lucky enough that I have traveled to a lot of different countries and Bhutan is, is, is incredibly different from a lot of other places that I've been to, um, in that there are, um, the, the people that I met, um, seem to have a uh, connection with their community in ways that I, that I hadn't seen in many other places, a connection to um, each other, a connection to, um, you know, and it's easy, I think, to romanticize that as a traveler when you're only there for two weeks or however long I was there for. Um, so it's, it's pretty simple to do that, um, you know. And, and I also were, was seeing, I think, Bhutan at a cusp where, like, there was a very big generational difference between um, the older generation, those who were, let's say, 40 and over, and the younger generation, those who were, um, you know, much younger, their 20s, teenagers, um, you know, and I'm, you know, I, I think that the way of life of um, a lot of Bhutanese are, will continue to change in the next generation, um, you know, and it's, it is kind of like this, this place that was, you know, seen as kind of like cut off for the rest of the world, and it had been. Um, but, but, you know, nothing exists in a void. You know, we're all connected in some way. <laughs> right. And I, I brought up the travel thing because there is this kind of, um, you know, this uh, culture these days on, you know, I mean, you look on social media things where you go to places to take a picture of yourself in that place. Mm. Um, and this kind of, kind of solipsism, this narcissism of, you know, that like, just looking at places as destinations or something as opposed to this is somebody's home. And I, I was just curious um, if uh, your perspective, how, how you view yourself traveling in these places. Yeah. Um, and that's a good question. I think that there's a lot of different kinds of 
reasons why people leave home. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of different, I think, uh, motivations that people have. Um, sometimes, you know, people leave home um, to forget, you know what I mean? They just relax and not have to think. And they, they want to eat, they want to drink, they want to shop, they want to relax. They, they want to leave their worries behind. They don't want to use the brains. You know, they just want to you know, relax. And that's a vacation. And then you're a tourist and that's fine. And I think that those, um, you know, that's a particular uh, means of um, travel. Uh, but I, I, I do think that, you know, there's a, there's a very big difference between being a tourist and being a traveler. Um, you know, a tourist is someone who brings a lot of their, um, a lot of their culture with them and uh, doesn't make the same, uh, I guess, doesn't make the same, um, uh, you know, they don't try to see cultures uh, without it being veiled through their own eyes of their own culture. So, you know, they're, they're, they're a little bit more um, judgmental, a little bit more, um, you know, comparative, um, a little bit more, even romanticism is, is you know, as a part of that, um, you know, and it's, it's, I think if you are, if you, if you, if you're traveling to a place to learn more about that place or to learn more about yourself or to learn more about your own culture or your own ideas, or your own value systems, and that you're really open to, um, you know, to, to, to accept and to feel how, um, you know, your own life could be different after coming back, you know, with that mentality, with that um, kind of motivation, I think travel can be something very different. Yeah. Let's, uh, I've got two more questions to wrap up. Um, sure. We're going to talk about uh, homeless uh, for a minute. Um, as you well know, we have a new mayor and one of the yeah. first things he wanted to do was prevent um, people seeing homeless people on the freeway. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to totally, you know, I'm not trying to say that it wasn't a good thing to help people find um, housing, but at the same time, you know, we often know that housing is not really the problem. Um, it's the most visible issue, but it's not oftentimes the issue. Um, and the, obviously the bigger thing is too, you know, I, I think we just want to solve people's problems without getting to know them. And obviously you did kind of the opposite thing in the film you made. You just got to know some people. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a tough balance. I, um, I lived in Pasadena for a while and in LA they've got interesting ways um, of uh, dealing with homeless, which is basically shipping them out of the suburbs and isolating them in this kind of wild West that is skid row. Mm. Um, and for a while they had these parking meters that they put up around the city where instead of giving change to a homeless person, you were put the money in the parking meter um, and they were like orange. So they designated these were like the homeless parking meters and all of that change went to the homeless center in the city. And the idea was um, to uh, promote like the long-term change as opposed to, you know, giving someone money so they can go buy a 40 or whatever. Um, but I think one of the obvious, you know, <laughs> real, uh, outcomes of that is saying, here's more reasons to ignore people. <laughs> yeah. Now let, now you have a full, like you have license, uh, to just not even look at people, 
Because um, at least, I mean, one of the tangential benefits of your guilt as you walk by someone who's homeless is like, you feel like you're doing something wrong by ignoring them a little bit. Yeah. And so that drives you to at least have a somewhat human interaction in some ways. Um, but I found myself after they put those meters up, just going like, well, I put a quarter in the meter down there. So I'm just not even going to look at you in the eyes. I'm just going to yeah. keep walking down uh, through old town Pasadena and just ignore you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's such a complicated issue. So um, can you talk a little bit about the film you made and then um, how you think about uh, homelessness? Yeah. Um, the film I made was uh, part of the um, the local um, film festival, The Big Tell, uh, in which they um, support local storytellers, tell stories of the valley. Um, and uh, it's a great opportunity for um, for valley stories to get told. So the the um, th- th- what I had focused on were um, three three men who uh, were homeless um, and had struggled with addiction. And um, one of them was um, in a program to uh, a rehabilitation program. One of them wa- uh, had. Uh, done a rehabilitation program about a year and a half ago and was kind of like getting on his feet. And one of them was, um, had gone through the program about four years ago and had a small bounce house business and was, you know, making ends meet that way. So it was the story of um, kind of like overcoming, right? And um, the, uh, you know, the the three characters were um, incredibly, incredibly uh, generous in sharing their lives with me and their and their story, um, you know, and I think that every time that I um, that I feel like I'm being, you know, vulnerable by just asking someone to tell their story and to you know to share their story with me, I'm just blown away by the willingness of some of the um, you know uh, p- people that have been um, that I've had the the good fortune of working with to you know have the courage to kind of share their story. Um, so, you know, the, I, I think what I found out, and this was, and I had found all of them through the program at the Pavarello House that um, each one of them had gone through. And the Pavarello House has been you know a Fresno fixture for 20, 30, 40 years, a bit a while. Um, and it helps men um, who have been arrested numerous times uh, to basically go through rehabilitation and then um, they help them find a job and you know, they put them through a halfway house and it's been fairly successful. You know, instead of a judge, um, you know, telling someone, you know, we, we're going to send you back to jail, you know, well, let's, let's try this, this other, you know, potential means of getting you back into you know, being a productive member of society, um, you know, and I think that, you know, everyone, everyone's dealing with, uh, you know, everyone's dealing with a lot, you know, in their lives, we're all struggling in, you know, different ways, and we all find, um, but we're all kind of like, just, I think we all, you know, we all want to be, um, you know, we all want to be happy, we all want to be comfortable, we all want to be, um, you know, we all want to feel good, right? Um, and I, 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 you know, and I think that there's this spectrum um, of individuals that I that I had come across during that film, 
where, um, you know, they're at different stages. You know, in the early stages, some of them believe that, you know, they don't deserve any of that. They don't deserve any of that, you know, and I do think that, you know, that is, um, you know, that's the source of real evil in this world when we believe deep down in ourselves that we don't deserve to be happy. We don't deserve to be um, comfortable. We don't deserve any of the good things that anyone else has. And I think that, you know, th that's, 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 that's real evil in the world. And, um, you know, a lot of people are suffering from that from, you know, and afflicted in a number of different ways. And oftentimes it manifests through some sort of addiction. And a lot of them were addicted to, you know, any kind of, um, uh, any kind of, you know, substance. Um, you know, and I, I, I was, uh, I was inspired by the, the, the means of, um, of finding, uh, how they can help others, you know, and I think that, um, you know, almost, you know, I think Pavarello House is, is rooted in a very Christian tradition. And I think a lot of religion, religions, you know, um, talk about, you know, if you, if you, if you want to find, if, you know, if you, if you want to find some sort of happiness in your life, you have to work to make others happy. Right. Um, and I think that was really much the, um, the philosophy of helping these individuals was that, you know, how can you help society? Not so much, you know, like in a lot of, I think, which kind of feels like, you know, rehabilitation, sometimes you're like, well, how are we going to help you? How are you going to help yourself? Um, it kind of put it on its head where it's like, not how are you going to help yourself? How are you going to help society? And then find meaning, you know, for yourself. And then when you can find ways of helping others, you know, you're motivated to help yourself. But, you know, you can't, you have to, you know, if you're motivated to help others, you're motivated to change yourself to help others. Right. You know, and I think that a lot of people had found difficulty in finding motivation to help themselves because they didn't feel like they deserved it. But when you talked about helping others, they found a little bit of motivation, whether it be family, because a lot of those men had family, you know, like, how can you help your daughters? How can you help your wife? How can you help, you know, others? How can you help your brother? How can you help your mom and your dad? You know, and that was the motivation that they needed to, to be able to kind of, you know, and addiction itself is you know, a, a, a incredibly challenging um, illness, you know, that's not something that's easily, um, you know, fixable for anyone, you know, and, and once you have, you know, an addictive personality, you know, that's not something that, that is easy to, uh, to shake, you know, that's just, you just manage that for the rest of your life. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. You can look at it structurally. You can look at, you can talk about the closing of, uh, large state hospitals, over the 20th century and the effect that had. You can look at individual stories of how these people ended up there. Um, but I like that idea of um, thinking about what role you play. Because, I mean, when you're living in a world of addiction, you're living in a world that's all yourself all the time. Right. Um, you're driven by your own needs and desires and like how to fix, get a fix for those in the moment. Um, and I think redirection is such a great thing. And I think it's, um, yeah, purpose, right. And, you know, home, you know, if you give someone a home, that's fine. But if you give them a purpose, I think that's, um, that can be powerful. So let's uh, close today by talking about books. Yeah. I like to, but I also want books and documentaries. I want some documentary recommendations as well. So maybe let's start with documentaries and then finish with books. Sure. Um, <clears throat> anything in particular? Uh, just documentaries maybe that have come out in the past few years that 
maybe people haven't seen yet that you'd recommend? Okay. Documentaries. Well, see, I, so I, I watch documentaries, I guess, for um, maybe different reasons than other people. I watch documentary for the art form. Um, like, well, so for instance, tell us what you, tell yeah. us what you watch. So um, I just watched um, Kirsten Johnson's Dick Johnson is Dead. <laughs> uh, where um, she's dealing with her father's dementia, and um, it's a comedy. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, Kirsten Johnson, she did this film called Camera Person. She was kind of like the like this like uh, gun for hire for a lot of filmmakers. She did Citizen Four. Um, she did a, uh, a lot of Alex Gibney work. Anyway, she kind of moved into directing her own films, and Camera Person was about a. Um, like a lot of the, it was kind of like a memoir, I guess, of being present and documenting certain things. Um, an incredibly good film. Dick Johnson is Dead was her second film. And, um, you know, she says in interviews, there was an excuse for, for her to hang out with her dad more. Uh, but um, basically it's like she gets him to reenact all these different ways for him to die. <laughs> and they, like, they stage like a funeral. Um, he has like an air conditioner fall on him as he's walking down the street. Uh, there's like, it's, it's, it's imaginative, you know what I mean? It's an imaginative and it pushes, I think the, um, the genre in, in certain ways. Um, well, I'll have to check that out. Cause I loved obviously citizen four and just kind of how raw that was. And yeah, I hadn't watched, I guess anything else that she had made. So that's a good one to know about. Yeah. Um, so let's see. Um, I'll tell you about the film that uh, encouraged me into becoming a filmmaker. Um, it's a little bit older, but it's, and it's a personal film. It's called Nobody's Business by Alan Berliner. Um, and uh, Alan Berliner is this filmmaker, this um, kind of like obsessive filmmaker in New York. Um, and he does films, like for instance, he did a film called The Sweetest Sound, where um, he was getting, he was getting like, um, mail or emails for another Alan Berliner somewhere else. And he was curious about like, well, how many Alan Berliners are there? Um, and he did all this research, he found them and he invited them all to his house for dinner. And the film is about like um, identity. And it's about like, you know, how we, you know, view ourselves individually, uh, it's, it's smart. But anyway, the film that I, that I think that he, that changed, um, you know, my, uh, filmmaking career was a film called Nobody's Business and it was about his father because um, my first film that I made was called The Best Part of Everything and uh, it was kind of an exploration of a family as um, we as uh, and it was my family and it was about how my parents were kind of preparing for retirement and an empty nest while my sister and I were like leaving college just about to kind of strike out into the world and we kind of found all of ourselves at this moment we were like complete potential and wherever we wanted to do. And I noticed that, you know, like the dreams and the risks and the obligations that my parents felt when they were our age were very different than the ones that my sister and I were feeling. And there were some parallels where, you know, at the age that I made the film, my father got married, my mother already had two kids. There was like, there was, there, there was a lot of different kinds. So I found his, um, I found his film, Nobody's Business to be incredibly powerful. Um, uh, when I was making my film and it kind of pushed me into the personal filmmaking genre. Um, so maybe let's go to books now. What yeah. are some book recommendations? 
Um, so I, I, I think, and it's interesting that we brought up sapiens before, because there's a lot that I found that, um, you know, during different points of my life that I think that um, meant different things. And they all kind of come back to similar themes, maybe. Um, I, I, when I was younger, I, I really liked the book, The Little Prince. And then I like rediscovered that as an adult. And I think it was one of those books that can kind of like, you can kind of rediscover in different stages of your life. Um, you know, and I think it's just, it's about like, you know, like um, childhood innocence and wandering and placing meaning on certain. And sometimes the invisible is more important than the visible. There was a line in that about like a rose meaning more because he watered it, you know, and I, and I kind of, I remember that as a kid. Um, so, I mean, that's one of the books that if I find, you know, used bookstore, I will buy it. No matter how many copies I own, I will buy it and then, you know, give it to someone. Yeah. Um, a book called Ways of Seeing by John Berger. He, uh, John Berger was like a cultural critic, an art critic. He wrote this book. There was actually a documentary series back in the 70s, and this book came out, I think, with him. But the, but, but the book is, you know, it's kind of like a seminal cultural studies book, but um, it's incredibly um, accessible to anyone who's interested in how we make meaning from images. You know, and I think the idea is that, you know, we see something but then we place meaning on top of those digits, you know, and as a photographer, um, you know, I think that that was really, um, I don't know, that was, that was really exciting for me, you know, like the idea that like there's this relationship between, you know, what we see and what we know is never settled. You know, like I, I enjoy watching a sunset every, you know, like when I can, you know, but like, I know that the sun isn't setting. I know it's the idea that the earth is moving, but like, there's a difference there. There's, there's something off where it's like, you know, no matter how much I, I view the sunset, I can't settle in my mind that this isn't the fact that the sun's going down. <laughs> the earth is moving. Is it, was it, was that also made into a film ways of seeing? It might be. Okay. I just, I, I mean, I've seen the, I've seen the, the BBC documentary that was. Oh that yeah, came yeah, out. yeah. 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 That's what I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And I was going to say sapiens, you know, where the idea of like, the idea of, um, you know, we have these like two dual realities of, you know, what exists, um, you know, in the world, like mountains and trees and rivers, and then the, like this subjective reality that we, and meaning that we place on top of things, you know, that's like these, these amazing, um, you know, stories, this fictional layer that helps to like, you know, that helps us and is even more powerful than, you know, the trees and the mountains, you know, and that's, you know, these stories that we, you know, all um, believe in like money and states and, you know, human rights, you know, that, uh, that in, in one way or another almost are more powerful than, than the real thing. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking with me uh, to close. Where can people find uh, your work and stuff, your website? Um, yeah. And what projects are you working on these days? Sure. Um, you can find my work at, at my website, jesslericholson.com. Uh, everything is pretty much, pretty much right there. Um, I'm writing, a, I'm writing a, a chapter right now on personal documentary and uh, the decisions why anyone would want to make a film about, you know, someone that, but where they, they themselves are a character in the film. Okay. Well, great. Thank you for talking with me today.
Yeah, thanks, Jordan, for having me. It was a pleasure. In the U.S., Fresno's best. Fresno's best. All right, that's it for us. As always, you can support the podcast by either leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's best. We'll see you next time.